Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning as we take our final look at the spiritual discipline of fasting. Uh, so we've learned uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, through Jesus' teaching uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular that giving, praying, and fasting, they were just normal practices um, for Christians. It was what we were known for. And so this morning, I want to begin by asking the question, what are we fasting for? Or what are we expecting? And I want us to actually come to the conclusion that these are the wrong kinds of question to be asking. It's not a question of what are we fasting for or what are we expecting to get out of fasting? But it's actually, who are we fasting for? What direction are our hearts facing? So as we dive into our passage, I'll just share some context about the book of Isaiah, uh, because it's a book we don't often touch in church. Um, so I'll give you a brief history. So to set the scene, by this stage um, in the history of the people of God, Israel, um, Israel has a country has split in two, is split up. So in the north, there's this larger country called Israel, and to the south, there's a smaller country called Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem. So there's a similar situation as the one we have in Ireland today, where there's a Northern Ireland and a Republic of Ireland. So the kingdom in the north, they have their own kings, and um, the general rule with them is that they've wholesale turned away from God. They've turned away from worshiping in Jerusalem. They've mixed their beliefs and their behaviors with the people around them. And things are going from bad to worse. And then the kingdom to the south, as a general rule, they're slightly better than the kingdom to the north, but not by much. There's not much in it. And so during Isaiah's lifetime, uh, there are a number of crises that face the country of Judah. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is attacked by an alliance of the northern kingdom. So, the, so Israel comes down and attacks uh, Judah. So Ahaz, instead of trusting in God, um, he sells his soul. He forms an alliance with the superpower of the day. Uh, and at that time, it was a people called the Assyrians. So the Assyrians, they were the bad boys of the day, and they come and they attack this northern kingdom, Israel, and they wipe the floor with them. They wipe them out, and they're destroyed, and it kind of leaves Israel as this, or Judah, sorry, I should say. It leaves Judah as this puppet state. Then a guy called Hezekiah becomes the king, uh, so he becomes king of Judah, and he decides, wouldn't it be a good idea to rebel against these guys, the Assyrians? We don't like them much, they're kind of controlling us. So he forms an alliance with the Egyptians and they rebel. The unfortunate thing by this stage, Egypt isn't as important as she once was, not as powerful. So effectively, it was like Monaco going out to fight the Russians or the Americans in the battlefield. So the Assyrians, they put Jerusalem under siege, but God is faithful. Hezekiah cries out to God, has a position of faith, and God rescues the people of Judah from the hand of the Assyrians. Another key feature of the book of Isaiah is um, how um, Judah has wandered far 
from God, the God they had once loved. And so a lot of what Isaiah talks about is kind of predicting that he would send the people of Judah to an exile. He would send them away to Babylon as punishment for turning away from God time and time and time again. Yet Isaiah wants to show something of God's grace, that this isn't the end game of Judah as the people of God. They will still exist as the people of God, and they aren't beyond God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And so towards the end of the book of Isaiah, God is faithful, and the people are forgiven by him, and they return to their land from exile. Because in addition to God being a God of justice, God is a God of supreme mercy, kindness, love, and grace. Yet despite God's goodness to the people of Judah, it doesn't take them long to fall into old patterns of thinking and acting. So they begin to wander again from God. And so Isaiah is called by God to speak again to the people of Judah because they're going into decline once again. And isn't that true of us? In thought and word and deed, we go astray from the God who loves us and is for us and wants the best for us. We wander. Yet, in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, we see the justice of God and the mercy and love of God colliding. And in him we find forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. And so in our passage today, Isaiah is being instructed to get, uh, get to the people of God who have returned by this point from exile. He's trying to get them to recognize their sin and their rebellion against God. But the irony is this time, the call of God comes to a people who are very religious but they're finding no satisfaction at all in their religion. They're finding that somehow God is not responding to their religious activity. So my first point is a fast without blessing. Who here has ever been to Portrush? See a show of hands, good. People, people get about, that's good. Um, I think a road trip there is really great uh, because they have beautiful beaches, great cliffs, great scenery. Uh, and one of the other things they have is Barry's Amusements. Who else has been? Good, it's not just me. Um, and one of the things that you can do there is you can get on a small, rusty, slightly terrifying roller coaster. Um, but one of the other things that you can do there is that they have these things called slot machines. You ever seen those, those things? Yeah. Uh, and so how a slot machine works is you get your 1p and your 2p coins, and you kind of try and force these coins into these like slots in the hope that you're going to get more coins out the other end. I suppose at some stage this was actually a lot of fun because 1p's and 2p's were actually worth something back in the day. Um, I'm not making the point that we should go out and gamble our 1Ps and our 2Ps. That's not the point of this illustration. But I want to ask, is God a slot machine? 
No, he's, he's not. But some things, and, and I think this is not just in fasting, we can have this kind of transactional view of God, uh, that God is some kind of cosmic slot machine where we put these kind of bronze coins of our religious fake devotion in, and we're supposed to get something in return. Um, this is not how God works. Does God owe us something? No, he doesn't. And in truth, I need reminded of this all of the time. God owes us nothing. Yet, in the sending of his son, in Jesus' death and his resurrection, we see that although he owes us nothing, he gives us everything. And so to view God as a slot machine is kind of a very dangerous practice that we as Christians can get into because it devalues the fact that God is a God of grace and also devalues the fact that God is a loving father. It devalues trust in him. Because he's a God who forgives us, he also provides us with all that we need, sometimes more than we need. Not always what we think we need, sometimes in ways we don't understand. Nevertheless, this view that good behavior should result in brownie points with God flies in the face of his character. And sometimes we can confuse fasting with the hunger strike. So hunger strikes, they're often used to make people aware of a cause, maybe a political cause, and often they're good causes. So Gandhi in India, he used to fast and also engage in hunger striking to kind of bring to attention some of the injustices that were going on in India. But fasting is not a hunger strike because these things are usually motivated by vanity or the desire for power. And so what's happening in our passage is the people of Judah were treating fasting as a pressure hunger strike. See, the religion of Judah had become like the Canaanites before them. The Canaanites would perform different religious activities in a way to kind of pressurize the gods that they believed in, to pressurize them into acting on their behalf. And so what the people are, of Judah are doing here is they're trying to guilt God. They're trying to pressurize the God of the universe to act in the ways that would please them. Yet, the essence of the faith that we believe in is the total reverse. It's about response towards him. It's about obedience towards him. It's about faith acting in beautiful obedience. And so, in verses two to five of our passage, we see something of the false being exposed. We see that the people of Judah, and this is right across the book of Isaiah, that they had false motives. And it wasn't just their fasting, it was true of their prayer life, it was true of their offerings, it was true of their giving. They had false motives. And Jesus of Nazareth was the only person to ever get this totally right. Everything that he did was directed towards the giver, towards the Father. 
He wasn't looking for something back. He wasn't looking for something in return. And we know this from the humble obedience that he had coming to earth to serve others. We'll be remembering this in the coming weeks as we reflect on Christmas. Living a life of service, service of God, the Father, and service of others. Going to the cross humbly for us. He had his heart motives right all of the time. In fact, Jesus, when addressing fasting, the thing that he does is he tackles the heart first. We read this in Matthew 6, 16 to 18, where we read, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In verse two in our passage in Isaiah, what is really quickly apparent is that these people were a pious people. They were, in inverted commas, good living people. But actually, their spiritual lives were sin and rebellion masquerading as holiness. We hear that they were fasting. We hear that they were doing this regularly, day after day. They had the appearance of wanting to know God better and to have him draw near to them. Yet in verse 3, we see that their delight was actually a calculated policy to produce a heavenly reaction. The position of their hearts were like the Pharisees that we read about in Luke 18, where it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we see their motives, their hearts, were nowhere near God. Their pleasure was an empty religion, and their fasting was also ending in exploit, exploiting others. And so as often as Christians, we can lose sight of it all. In fact, everything we do in this place, and almost sometimes more importantly, outside this place, you know, it ought to be, everything we do here ought to be about bringing praise and glory to God. This morning, this thing called church, it's not about you, and it's not about me. 
the religious exercises of Judah, they're all external. They're all about looking good and getting something out of God. But they had no currency in heaven. Richard Foster comments, to use good things to our own ends is always a sign of fake religion. See, one of the things that fasting does to our hearts when done from the right motivation is to draw us closer to God. It makes us want to give to God without expecting something back. Andrew Murray once said, fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves for the kingdom. So verse four of our passage, we read that this religious activity, this fasting was resulting in quarreling and strife. In the original Hebrew, it says, you guys fast in order to quarrel, in order to have a fight. See, the falsehood of their motives was so easily exposed. And I guess that's what happens when you go without food for a while and you're not genuinely fasting. I know when I go out without food for a while and I'm not fasting, I can be quite a grumpy character. And I think this is exactly what's happening in the passage. As well, they're aggressively pointing the finger at others. They're being religious. They're exploiting the poor. This moves me on to my next point. I want to look at fasting with justice. So one of the things that we talk about uh, in our Alpha course and the Holy Spirit weekend is how the Holy Spirit begins to produce this kind of family likeness. So whenever we become Christians, we're adopted into God's family. And what the Holy Spirit does is begins to make us look more and more like Jesus. And the same is true when we fast with that heart to try and get to know God better. Is this passage saying that we should abandon church? Is this passage saying we should abandon worship? Is it saying we shouldn't fast in favor of social justice? No, it's not saying that. But what it is saying, it is saying that when you're fasting with a genuine motivation to know God better, to love him, to draw near to him, what should result are, is the byproducts of mercy and of justice. If we're fasting to spend time with the God of justice, the God who meets needs, the God who cares for others, it's only natural that flowing out of that fasting comes the creation of a more just society, the meeting of individual needs and care for other people. See, if fasting does not lead to compassion, the fasting is a waste of time before it's already begun. In verse six in Isaiah, it says that there's a call for us to loose the chains of injustice. So what are these? What's this talking about? What's the removal of unjust social structures? Things like human trafficking, fighting against those who are trying to change our abortion laws in Northern Ireland, fighting against those who want to exploit those in the bottom rung of society, the poor, fighting so there are fair working conditions, fighting to ensure that 
those who are elderly and infirm are cared for. It's fighting against racism. And in our land, it's fighting against sectarianism. The cords of the yoke, what are these? Well, if you imagine a yoke was put around an oxen so that the oxen could ply and work the land and the fields. Basically what the passage is saying, don't you dare treat human beings like domestic farm animals. Treat people like people. The oppressed, well, who are they? They're those who are broken and burnt out on life. Those from difficult family backgrounds. Those who are depressed. Those who are unwell. What we see in this passage as well is it includes care for your own family. And that extends to your church family and to your neighbor. What I love about this passage is it isn't just mere talk. There's some very practical responses in our passage about clothing people, feeding people, giving them shelter. Fasting, which deprives ourselves of the good gift of food, should make us more aware of the injustices that deprive people of food. In fact, uh, when the early church, when they were fasting, uh, we have literature um, written after the Bible was finalized uh, that said that the early Christians, uh, when they fasted, they kept all their food because they were so impacted by spending time with God and fasting that they wanted to give their food away to the poor. And that's exactly what they did. So finally, I want to say that a fast should come with a blessing. One of the main reasons that we exist as human beings is because we were made to delight in God. And this is what fasting is all about. And when this delight is found in him, we do see outcomes. Not the outcomes of a slot machine, but the blessings of being in relationship with a loving father. We see when we fast with genuine motives that there's a new beginning to life in a way. It says our light will break forth like the dawn because life with God is a life of light. We will see personal restoration and healing in him. We will see that God provides us with a righteousness by faith. We get more of his glorious guardian presence with us. There's fellowship with God. And I love what it says in verse 11. It says, he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. It's basically God will give you all that you need in times of trial and challenge. What I love about the focus of that passage is it's not just talking about the satisfaction that God gives, but where he gives it, where life is at its bleakest and its most difficult. So God, in summary, is not a slot machine, but he's a loving heavenly father. Fasting as a discipline is about drawing nearer to him. When we do it with the right heart, we get his. We become more like him, more just and more merciful. And fasting is supposed to be a blessing. 
So as I come in for a landing here, I have a couple of responses that you may want to make today. And the first one is you, we always want to provide this opportunity at our Sunday services. Uh, you may be here today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And we want to say that the opportunity is there for you today to respond to that. And please do come forward for that. Um, I'm really encouraging you not to leave here today until you've done that. Uh, secondly, uh, it might be to engage in the spiritual disciplines of fasting and simplicity. Um, so as a church, we haven't said that collectively we're engaging in a fast. And this is because we want it to be done with the right heart. But maybe your response this week is to fast. There's some great books out there if you want to explore this further. Just a couple of recommend. Uh, Scott McKnight has written a great book on fasting called Fasting. Um, there's a classic there in the middle, Richard Foster, A Celebration of Discipline. And then the one on the right is God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. The irony of me preaching on fasting is that medically, I can't fast. <laughs> but there are other things that we can do if, if you're in that situation too. Um, maybe you need some solitude in your life. Um, maybe you need to spend some time alone with the Lord, uh, away from people. Maybe what you need to do is kind of um, engage in that discipline of simplicity. So scrap your social media for a week. Um, replace your smartphone for a phone that can only get you snake. Um, maybe it's avoiding uh, the news and the negativity there. Um, for me, BBC Sports app is a bit of an addiction. Uh, it takes my focus away, so try and get away from that. Or maybe it's fasting from our consumer culture. Uh, another thing that we want, might want to do this week is kind of come in confession towards God and kind of say we're sorry for those times where we've come to worship and fasting and different things, even church, and kind of got the motivation wrong when it's all about Jesus. And finally, maybe your response today is to loose some chains. So God's speaking to you about the injustices of this world and how you can engage in that. So we'd really encourage you to respond today. We have a wonderful prayer ministry team who are gonna be here. Uh, we're gonna engage in a time of worship now, but please do begin to respond for prayer ministry as well.